podcast and i'm coming to you live from what can only be described as the pits <laughs> both literally and figuratively so last time i spoke to you guys i had developed a studio of sorts if you want to use a euphemism for carbon dioxide trap that is so if you're here then you'd know that the studio is just me talking from underneath my very thick blanket in an effort to block out sound from the outside world and to prevent many of us from hearing me speak about death which is what we'll be talking about today, if you didn't already know that. Which I'm assuming you do, because, like, you know, the title of the episode. So, the other day I was just thinking, you know, as, as you do, about life and all that associated stuff. Because, like, one of the modules that I have this semester is called Constitutional Law. And I hate it. <laughs> but let's not... I hate it, but okay, I guess maybe I can talk about it a bit later. So... The definition of constitutional law is very annoying because it's not actually direct and it doesn't really feel definitive to me, which is, I guess, the theme for the law as a whole. But like this one is particularly annoying and particularly convoluted and particularly intentionally mysterious without there being a reason for that. Like we keep speaking about constitutional law in relation to everything else, but they don't actually say what it is, in my opinion, of course. So... And maybe that my brain is too fried to understand these things. I don't know. But I just... It just doesn't... Hey, whatever. But anyway, in this constitutional law module, we have to talk a lot about, believe it or not, constitutional provisions. And one such provision is the right to life. I feel like life, death, and murder are stuff that people all over the world think about. It's an actually universal experience all of us at least the first two of the um things i mentioned are inevitable you are currently living by that i don't mean in the theoretical like are you living or are you just surviving type of situation i mean like actually like living and you will eventually die but you may not necessarily be murdered but either way these three things are extremely important not just in today's episode but in an effort to analyze the human experience as a whole in my opinion this is like inevitable like it's 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 like so intrinsically tied to like the human experience because like it's so hard to not have these things exist in any given society like you can't ignore the two first ones right and murder even if even in the most ideal perfect society there's still a very high likelihood that like murder can happen whether it's intentional or by mistake now, the provision of the right to life in the Constitution of the Republic of South Africa in 1996 does not suggest that the state somehow has the power to make people live forever. It simply means that one private person cannot take another person's life without there being a justifiable reason for that. Similarly, it means that the state does not have the power to take the life of a private citizen who has been accused of a particularly violent or morally reprehensible crime. In this way, it provides um, private citizens with dual protection from the state's retribution and fellow normal people's murder- murderous tendencies. Obvi- obviously, there's like some restriction even to this provision. So let's say you are in danger, then you can 
kill a person out of self-defense and the state can like what is it can allow can through the creation of an army or a police force justify the killing of like private citizens um like let's say a policeman or a woman or a person is chasing a criminal and they feel like the only way to like apprehend them is through killing them then there are provisions like from legislation that allow that to happen without the policeman being um policeman woman person without them being punished by the state and also like as an army uh fighting against another country's army now you know i have a lot of opinions about that but um i don't know if i should elaborate on that in today's episode but you know those are the exceptions to the general rule right but however since the decision to stop the state from handing down the death penalty was made there has been much contestation over whether or not this was the right decision many people i would go as far as to say that the majority of south africans want the death penalty to be reinstated you have to be walking around very specific groups of people um you have to be like in a very specific corner of the country to find people who disagree with the death penalty right people look at the country that they exist in and they feel like the only solution is to just permanently remove all the in quotation marks deviant members of society from our society and the problem with that is that it's quite the problem with that is quite simple right the death penalty has never existed to rid society of bad apples it is a means of subjugation controlled and con- control and conquest in particular it allows the state with its little crew knee the law to subjugate control and coerce marginalize people into submission to statism and in the past at least to colonial domination and apartheid policies and this is something that not all normal everyday south africans are privy to what i hope people will realize is that the death penalty wasn't created as a method of like a, a tool of protection right it was created to strip people of their humanity to dispossess them and ultimately to force them to adhere to the laws that were imposed upon them so as the episode episode progresses you'll find out that like there were even instances of um death penalty being allowed in different african communities before colonized colonization but even then the decision was very it was a it was a really big deal right it was like it was like being it had sort of implications that transcended even being alive on the planet it was like a thing where even the ancestors reject you you know it's it was like a huge thing like the the the, the highest level of um being cut off right and it was only used in the most extreme cases in most of these instances so this episode is going to basically operate like an essay I'm going to begin by talking about the history of the death penalty. Then I will talk about how different indigenous groups in the South African region and also some other countries in West, like one Af- country in West Africa, um, punished people in society in the pre-colonial era. Or not era, because pre-colonialism is not an era, like the before colonization. And then after that, I will talk, because yeah, we should stop seeing pre-colonial era because that like makes existence before colonialism and monolith and we all know that there were like different things happening yeah that was me and that was my own era of phrasing and correcting myself but then after that i will talk about the period from 1652 to 1994 so the colonial period union era and apartheid era and how the death penalty operated during these times 
Then I'll talk about the case that changed everything in South Africa. That's, that is the state versus Maguanyan. I will talk about the government's failure to actually combat violent crime after that. And finally, I will tell you why the death penalty is not and can never be a solution to violence and violent crimes. So just in case you did not read the title and did not hear me speaking at the beginning of this episode, I'll be talking about death, right? And there'll be a few, at least in the very first portion of the um, episode, there'll be like, you know, a few gruesome examples. I will, I didn't even speak about the worst ones, by the way, but yeah, just a, a warning if that's triggering that it's here. To start off this analysis, we have to start way, way back when. And to quote from deathpenaltyinfo.org, the first established death penalty laws date as far back as the 18th century BC in the Code of King Hammurabi of Babylon, which codified the death penalty for 25 different crimes. Interestingly enough, the death penalty was not used as a punishment for committing murder. So this kind of suggests that like the death penalty was not really seen as like the way I'm interpreting it, it wasn't really seen as a method of retribution or revenge. It was just seen as like a punishment that you did this thing wrong, so you should just cease to exist. Um but um even so the code famously um prescribed that if a man destroys the eye of another man, they shall destroy his eye. So it's still about revenge, just not for murder which i found very interesting and peculiar right so the hammurabi code which was engraved on stone tablets for members of the public to see prescribed the death penalty for over 20 different offenses 25 different offenses as i've said depending on your social status you could be executed for theft perjury and other crimes that today are punished much more lightly in most countries Hammurabi uh, ruled the Babylonian Empire from 1792 to 50 BCE, and although he was concerned with keeping order in his kingdom, this was not his only reason for compiling the list of laws. When he began ruling the city-state of Babylon, he had control of no more than 50 square miles of territory. As he conquered other city-states and his empire grew, he saw that he needed to unify the various groups he controlled. Hammurabi keenly understood that to achieve his goal, he needed one universal set of laws for all the diverse people he conquered. Therefore, he sent legal experts throughout his kingdom to gather existing laws. These laws were reviewed and some were changed or eliminated before compiling his final list of 282 laws. So I want to, you see guys see already, I'm hoping you guys already see the trend here, that like, it was first an effort to kind of figure out what other people's laws were around him that he was conquering, right? Conquest, control, domination, death penalty. The prologue of Harumbi's code states that he wants to, quote, make justice visible to the land, to destroy the wicked people and the evildoer, and so that the strong might not injure the weak. The laws themselves support this compassionate claim and protect widows, orphans, and others from being harmed or exploited. Interestingly enough, like even this, I, I'm like, yeah, like, hello. Do you not see the hypocrisy? Because he's saying this even as he's participating in conquest of other people's land and the people on that land so that he can exercise control over them, which is kind of reminiscent of the um, imperialist, colonialist conquest that um happened uh due to europe's you know activities and how even though they were thinking that they were doing something good for the general public for the people 
they were unable to acknowledge how their they 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 their very existence their very activities are an act of the strong injuring in quotation marks the weak you know like relationally in terms of like we don't have a means of defending ourselves from your conquest and if we do then you know then the issues that come back come back like multifold worse but the death penalty was also part of the 14th century's Hittite code the 7th century's BC draconian code of ethics which made death the only punishment for all crimes right in the fifth, in the 5th century BC's um roman law of the 12 tablets it may have been a myth but legend has it that um, the draconian code was written in blood instead of ink so the death penalty was different for nobility free men and slaves and was and punishment for crimes um such as the publication of libels and insulting songs the cutting or grazing of crops planted by a farmer the burning of a house or a stack of corn near a house cheating by a patron of his client perjury making disturbances inside in the city willful murder of a freeman or parent or theft by slave were all punishment punishable by death <laughs> i i don't know why i giggled there but it's like can you imagine if someone killed you for cutting a, a, a farmer's crops eh. right after saying that i realized that um i live in south africa and people do get killed for doing that hey remember that other time when that other a farmer put a person in a coffin for stealing an orange yeah and it's so funny how things don't change <laughs> but yeah so death sentences were particularly gruesome and were carried out by such means as crucifixion drowning beating to death burning alive burying alive and impalement impalement amongst other things like it was actually scary the stuff that these people did to each other so these like examples are actually quite tame when compared to the other means of executing the death sentence guys i wish i was joking but yo i know it was Whew, every day was a scene there by there by athens so the first death sentence historically recorded occurred in six in the 16th century bc egypt where the wrongdoer a member of nobility was accused of magic and ordered to take his own life during this period non-nobility was usually killed with an axe mosaic law codified many capital crimes in fact there's evidence that jews jews used many different techniques including stoning hanging beheading crucifixion copied from the romans throwing the criminal from a rock and sewing asunder as different ways of executing the death penalty and in the 10th century AD hanging became the usual method of execution in britain in the following century william the conqueror would not only allow persons to be hanged or otherwise executed for any crime except in times of war i, I find the names that these british people give themselves so peculiar like why are you calling yourself william Anyway, this trend would not last for in the 16th century under the reign of Henry V as many as 72,000 people were estimated to be to have been executed. Some common methods of executing at the time were boiling, burning at the stake, hanging, beheading and drawing and quartering. Guys, okay, so executions were carried out for such capital offenses as marrying a Jew, not confessing to a crime and treason. The number of capital crimes in Britain continued to rise throughout the next two centuries. By the 1700s, 222 crimes were punishable by death in Britain, 
including stealing, cutting down a tree, and robbing a rabbit warren. In 1823, five laws passed exempting about 100 crimes from the death penalty. Between 1832 and 1837, many capital offences were swept away. In 1840, there was a failed attempt to abolish all capital punishment. Through the 19th and 20th century, more and more capital punishments were abolished, not only in Britain but also across Europe. But obviously, this trend did not necessarily persist in the um, the the countries, the lands that Britain colonizes is usually the trend, where like they may abolish certain behavior within Europe, but that doesn't mean that they abolish it in the countries where they've imposed certain behavior it kind of makes me think about like how they abolished slavery in britain but they allowed it to persist in like uh, other parts of the world uh, the fact that they may have abolished slave labor in britain but they profit from slave labor in the african continent as well as um, southeast asia and south asia and it also makes me think in particular about um I don't know if you guys know about it, the Nordic system, right? The one of social democracy, where inside of the specific European countries, people have these beautiful um, social democracy states, a beautiful welfare state. People get high quality education, but they still profit off of the um, oppression of people in the global south. It's like very, very, very interesting. And it's a trend that has... like been here since the dawn of european modernity but first before we talk about the shenanigans that they participated in in southern africa we will first talk about pre-colonial southern africa so before colonialism happened africans had their own methods of delivering punishments rehabilitating the so-called deviant members of society and protecting people who had been made victim to some sort of violence whether it was sexual physical verbal or even spiritual when listening to people talk talking about ubuntu a concept which i feel has been helplessly whitewashed and stripped of its transformative power in the present day it becomes easy to assume that all southern african groups simply forgave transgressors of their crimes but this is not true yes communal communal communalism (laughs) backed up by tradition and religion made it so that people's understanding of crimes and punishment were less individualized but Transgressions did not go unpunished simply because a person is a person because of other people. What I found interesting, and you'll see this in a little bit, is the fact that the focus was on rehabilitation and on making sure that the victim was provided some sort of therapy. So I don't know like what word to use here. I don't like like I can't couldn't think of a better word to fit the description, but like on like rehabilitating the victim themselves, right? On helping the victim who has been like um, who has been harmed in some way by another person's action so let me just i want to make use of an example to kind of illustrate what i mean so right now in present day south africa if someone some some if some if someone yo someone is taken to jail for raping someone all that the victim or survivor gets in return is the knowledge that the person who violated them is in prison however in many of the communities mentioned below uh during the like the before colonialism there would be an element of a payback to the victim for example the offender would have given the family of the person they harmed a cow if they harmed the person and they there's the shame that a person who harmed another person got was actually not theirs alone it would be the entire family or clan's shame 
right they would share their shame for the one person's actions so i feel like this has a completely different characteristic in that right now i feel like the criminal justice system is almost entirely retribution like focused on retribution because going to jail does not rehabilitate you a person going to jail doesn't change the fact that a person has been raped you know whereas even though the person in a traditional community before colonization would have still had to like deal with the trauma of having been violated they at least knew that that person who violated them would be shunned by the entire community they may be ostracized or completely cut off from their society they may have to pay back they may have to like give some something of monetary value not really but the intent was not even monetary it was just like to show a sense of like um guilt and like i'm sorry for what i did you know and i feel like that has a different characteristic obviously like there's not enough elaboration for me to say anything definitively but that's what i think based on the knowledge that i do have the source that i have drawn on so yeah so i found this really cool article that kind of summarizes how different societies treated the death penalty or like um punishment for transgressions in the society and the author focuses on the organization of the societies as a mode of comparison the categories are as follows islamic african societies strongly centralized societies and decentralized societies unfortunately it's behind a paywall <laughs> of course it is why would it not so i could not read the whole thing and got all the inf- get all the information but i did manage to get the abstract um and the first like subheading of the article so we at least know how punishment was delivered and have a vague understanding of the extent to which it was used and of course like this is um like i just said a few like minutes ago i think it's a very monolithic representation of it we only know this as like a snapshot of time we don't know how it would have functioned over a long period of time like you know in the different eras that took place in different parts of africa and you know so this is just the knowledge that we have right now and yes so the article reads as follows prior to colonialism and i also figured out how i used to say colonialism i was saying colonialism that's how i said it ah interesting language but yeah prior to colonialism african societies varied widely uh, widely as to the use of death penalty the manner in which the capital cases were tried and the ritual of Yo, why did I say that so badly? Prior to colonialism, African societies varied widely as to the ex- their use of death penalty, the manner in which capital cases were tried, and the ritual process of execution. Quaranic principle. Oh, Quaranic principle. Why did you? Why did I? St- <laughs> What's wrong with me? Quaranic principles of justice and retribution tended to impose some uniformity across Islamic Africa, but elsewhere, the use of the death penalty was highly contingent on traditional views traditional views of death burial and the afterlife in strongly centralized societies a ruler as representative of the spiritual world often possessed strong powers of discretion or mercy decentralized societies tended to use systems of compensation or traditional punishments such as banishment or ostracism pre-colonial criminal justice remains relevant because it continues to influence public opinion on the death penalty and may provide a restorative model for transitional post-conflict nations also of the islamic zone where the spread of the faith brought some uniformity on morality and justice issues the use of the death penalty varied enormously among pre-colonial african societies 
These societies tended to be tightly knit, and even punishments such as ostracizing an offender through social isolation or banishment could have been devastating. Spiritual sanctions were also important in providing the community and included, for instance, uttering, uttering curses against perpetrators of serious crime. Policing and criminal punishment were collective. A Ganda proverb from Uganda sums up this philosophy. Uh, I'll translate it to English because I don't know. Um, I can't obviously I can't speak Ganda, and it says the whole clan is shamed by the clansman offense, and the whole clan was required to make amends for one clansman offense. So the death penalty was deeply feared and had profound spiritual consequences. In capital punishment in pre-colonial Africa, your synthesity challenge, Andrew Novak says, and I quote, a stereotype exists in Africanist scholarship of pre-colonial criminal justice as emphasizing the collective over the individual, the compensatory over the punitive, the informal over the formal, and the insider over the outsider. While the entire community could have a role to play in enforcing criminal sanctions to prevent spiritual harm, collective enforcement did not preclude individual responsibility. Elias cautions against characterizing African customary or traditional law as preoccupied with the maintenance of social equilibrium and aiming at restitution, not retribution. Pre-colonial justice systems had a retributive element as well, especially where punishments were divinely sanctioned. Diamond indicates that many pre-modern societies punished homicide with death, but compensation or a fine could be payable for negligent or accidental homicide, citing cases from West and Southern Africa, Islamic countries, and Mexico and Peru. Use of the death penalty was especially varied for crimes other than spiritual offenses or murder. As Diamond writes, unlike homicide, the death penalty for adultery, rape, or theft was much more culturally contingent. Among the Yoruba, theft was liable to death only if repeated a third time. You know what, guys? I I know that you are hearing the vibration of my phone. I apologize. I... <sighs> I'm just booked and busy. What can I say? <laughs> it's just people speaking on a school group chat. So, um, elsewhere in elsewhere in Nigeria, forms of punishment such as flogging, mutilation, payment of restitution or a fine, or public humiliation were more common than death for the crime of theft. And I also like saw it the other day, like this other picture that I was talking about how the Yoruba believed in revenge. They do not believe in like, um, I slipping the other cheek. I show you the other cheek. They believed they had even a god of revenge or a god of war. And I found that very fascinating. Just like how, because you know how you're, like it's a different ethnic group, a different part of the African continent. Whereas like Bantu people, like there's a certain element, there's a, in, like the way I've seen it so far, I don't want to speak about this definitively, but the way that I've seen it and heard about it being spoken from books and like scholars and stuff is that the Bantu people were very much focused on, um, that whole concept of ubuntu very like you know and obviously like ubuntu like now it like i I, as i was busy complaining at the beginning of this episode means something completely different from what it probably meant a long time ago or what the people intended it to mean so now it's just like used as an excuse to just like sometimes it is is an excuse to allow people to go unpunished for their offenses or to make it so that people aren't held accountable for their wrongdoings. Whereas Ubuntu just means that, like, understand a shared understanding of your common humanity, which can actually mean a lot of things, right? It's a very, um, it's a very ambiguous um, concept. Because, like, when you think about it, if I am because you are, right, then you could use that 
phrase to mean so many different things so um i am i am a person so then so then you are a person right okay that means one thing so if you infringe on my personhood then it's like infringing on everyone's personhood so now you must do something to do like you know it can mean so many different things and i feel like the scope of it has been limited like unjustifiably just yeah, because it can and because it will help to make it so that people don't have to be punished for their things and i'll get to that in a bit because hey it's a thing that i you will see in just like when we get to that stop topic but yes but yeah writings of bantu traditions in central and southern africa Karimunda explains that compensation was the preferred penalty for unlawful sexual intercourse, including rape and adultery, among groups such as the Kikuyu, Gamba, and Pokot of Kenya, and Arusha of Tanzania, and usually the Baganda of Uganda, who practiced compensation even for intentional homicide. Other societies opted for social death instead, such as ostracism or banishment. Among the Kikuyu, only habitual theft created a, pun- a public danger that could lead to execution. Simple theft generally resulted in compensation. Methods of execution were closely related to notions of death, burial, and the afterlife. Diamond notes that in some pre-modern societies, a murderer was killed with a weapon that he or she used to commit the murder, while others preferred a method of execution that avoided significant bloodshed, shed, such as hanging or throwing from a height. The Dumbuka of Malawi would carry out the slow burning of offenders for the crime of adultery to prevent pestilence or drought wrought by ancestral spirits. The Zona people of Botswana and South Africa traditionally punished murder, murder in a manner similar to how the murder was carried out, typically stabbing or clubbing. So the next author, who is a South African, spoke at great length about the different ways in which homicide was punished in pre-colonial Africa, South African, African societies. They talk about the many different societies, but I won't pull on any of these examples as I feel like I've mentioned enough. But I would highly recommend reading it because, like, um, the analysis of like in particular the Zulu people, like how, like they sh- the, the author spoke about something called I think it's Sibs, and how there were people who had already been banished from their own um groups, and then they kind of um amalgamated into a new tribe, like. That was eventually um what is the word what is the word i want to use conquered over by shark they even speak about the pre-shakan era and i was like i've never seen that happen before like when like an era is spoken about in relation to like a huge african figures like to just show the before and the after in relation to an african figure and what impact they had on like the way people constitute themselves and the identity that they share because like like the Zulu Zulu people, the, the like the history of the Zulu people is so fascinating, cause like just so fascinating, and I just I just really like the the that because I found it really interesting, but they also speak about many many different Southern African societies and groups and how they um punished homicide. So read that if you wanna read. I found it incredibly interesting, so I recommend it. But what I do want to draw on from this article is the author. Tandabantu Nklapo's conclusion regarding the traditional approach to homicide. I don't know what it is with me, man. And, like, you know the thing when, like, you've never had to, like, say a name before. Like, you know how the pronunciation works. You know how to enunciate. But you still struggle to say. Because, like, why am I struggling to say Tandabantu? Like, you know, it's, like, it's just weird. Because I remember, like, even, let's say, let's say I'm on an online lecture. And I see a name. 
and like in my head i can conceptualize how to say it because i know how every single word is supposed to be pronounced but when i say it it comes out wrong <laughs> and i'm like this is very annoying so that was a strange tangent but um the author says and i quote to make sense of the traditional african approach to homicide one has to understand that it is predictably pervaded by the community principle which itself is so is no standalone factor but part of a complex set of interlinked considerations religion belief in the supernatural and the survival imperative inevitably life in the sense of the right to life must have meant something to traditional society that is fundamentally different from the meaning it has in contemporary society there is a sense in which it is not overstating the case to suggest that a person's life belonged to her but to others as well identifying her digital her and individual right to life was therefore not a single linear calculation a homicide in traditional society whether accidental negligent or intentional invoke justifications or produce consequences that are demonstrably different from anything that one might associate with for instance a killing in south african in a south african suburb or township today so it's what i was saying on that like even though like the other author um andrew novak said that like it's important to not think that everything was about restitution and not retribution it wasn't right there was still a there was still an element of like punishing a person for their wrongdoing but fundamentally there was a different there was an added element there that is not to be found today because we're following a more a western uh, model of like punishment and criminality and you know just identification of what it even is to do something criminal so yeah however before we get into what happens when a person is like murders or kills a person in the present day we have to go back to the long period before today the one stretching from 1652 to 1994 i remember there was this other song that was like 1990 what 1990 who I don't know why I'm singing that song because it has nothing to do with it. Does it? I don't know. Whatever. So I feel like the analysis of murder by state is particularly interesting during the colonial union and apartheid period because of a whole number of reasons. Firstly, killing is not always about punishing a person for a bad thing that they did against another individual, but also for disagreeing or acting in defiance against the state. Secondly, for much of this period, there wasn't even such a thing as a South Africa. There wasn't a state, at least not as we presently know it. And yet these settlers had the power to exercise this type of control over indigenous peoples. And lastly, it puts into light how much the death penalty is not about solving problems, but about squashing pests. Which is again a definitive shift from what we have come to understand um, even the death penalty was in African communities, right? It wasn't just about like um, removing people from, like bad people from society. It was about like you are actively harming other people and like we have given you chances but you are just doing this now you know it's it's not the immediate reaction it has so many different impacts that it's not the first option that people run to and now to quote from jolan jolandi levy's impact of the criminal penalty on criminality the death penalty was first introduced in South Africa by colonial powers in 1652. This was this widely used law was initially imposed for crimes such as rape, murder, arson, fraud, sodomy, incest, public violence, and theft. The criminal punishment in South Africa during the 17th and 18th century was harsh and brutal. 
In the latter part of the 19th century, the courts began restricting the death penalty to the offences of murder, treason and rape. This was probably like in keeping with the trend in Britain of like limiting the scope of applicability of the death penalty. So there was no uniformity in these statutes relating to the death penalty in the 19th century and the death penalty issue in South Africa has long been a controversial topic because race often plays a key role in the imposition of a death sentence. Although the death penalty in pre-colonial Africa was intertwined with religious and spiritual beliefs, the onset of colonial rule imposed the modern conception of criminal justice as dispensed by the state. In the early years of the colonial era, justice was a rough and ready affair. Both government, police and monetary forces were numerically small, large territories only thinly policed by a colonial government that focused its efforts on protecting European lives and commerce. Do you see that? It's to protect what? European lives and commerce. So the imposition of death penalty would be just to protect um, these European communities' um, commercial and, you know, life-related interests not to uh, uh so i just wanted to point that out Ooh, i wanted to that's a different point so you can see now that the trend from the onset is to just protect white people that is the reason why death penalty exists in south africa uh, maybe it's, we can say okay global trend of britain in general but like uh, fundamentally it was just a tool to be used against all of these different indigenous groups so given the skeletal nature of the colonial state over large rural areas, many traditional justice mechanisms survived well into the colonial period. Though the interaction between African populations and Western criminal justice mechanisms was much higher in European settlement colonies such as Algeria, Kenya, and Rhodesia. Um, what is, Rhodesia is now Zimbabwe. All the major colonial powers in Africa um, relied on capital punishment in their coloni colonies with the exception of Portugal, itself an early abolitionist country which used its African colonies <laughs> which uses African colonies for convict labor. Across the continent, criminal justice was a tool of social control, not just to ensure the compliance with European criminal norms, but to instill fear or respect in subject populations. And this was particularly true in the South African context, right? Between 1900 and 1950, South Africa was the only country in the world with a rising rate of death sentences handed down by the courts. This is obviously now we can think about the occurrences that were going on between 1900 and 1950. First of all, in 1910, the Union of South Africa was established, which entrenched the beginnings of like segregation. And then I keep forgetting when the national party took over but it was sometime in the 1940s then again we can think about how maybe there was a um, revolt against their rule and then you just use the death penalty to subjugate these people so Turrell the author of White Mercy a study of the death penalty in South Africa writes quote hanging was a symbolic expression of political power and death penalty was used as a weapon for social discipline but South Africa appears to have been lenient in the exercise of mercy which means that they did not use any mercy <laughs> basically To better understand the death penalty and mercy process in South Africa, Terrell relies on the English law. He notes that the English mapped homicide into one part murder and one part manslaughter and defined murder as unlawful killing with malice afterth malicious afterthought and manslaughter as unlawful killing without malice 
aforethought. It is a difficult read. As many criminals were given mandatory death penalty, the English relied on the royal prerogative of mercy to select non-capital murders. But instead, British courts preferred dispensing justice in the secrecy of the King's Council or the Home Office rather than in open courts. So that means that like there was not even a debate as to whether or not there would be an implementation of the death penalty. They just made it so that it would be like a secretive decision so that no one can object to the uh, findings of the, the, the case so that it's just implemented. So South Africans, Terrell argues, inherited the wide definition of murder. The mandatory death penalty and the secret process of mercy in death penalty cases from the English after they colonized the Cape in 1806. In chapter 2 of his book, Terrell traces the exercise of mercy under Governor Lord Gladstone, a weak believer in capital punishment who approved more executions than any of his pre-1948 successors because of his, quote, imperfect understanding of witchcraft, his anxiety of ritual murder, and the economic and social inequality of the times. So that just means that, like, it's a thing that we're talking about in one of my other modules, which is, um, it's called legal pluralism, but it's basically about African customary law. And it talks about how um, there were there, there was in the 1940. So the 1948 was when, uh, I think that is when actually the apartheid government was implemented. And during this time, the Kibadi was actually, in 1910 to 1948, the union period, there was uh, all sorts of different courts. They were called the native courts. But the native courts were judged on, like the people in charge of making decisions were white Europeans, white people. So they had a very limited understanding of the customary law, even though they liked to believe that they understood it, they, uh, they didn't. And this made it so that decisions were skewed in a very improper fashion, because like a person who doesn't even understand what's going on is the one deciding what should happen in the case. So in the end, his decisions were probably misconstrued because they didn't understand what the provisions of the customary law were and also because just you know in keeping with the times and the trend was to just make sure that like you just kill the black people um uh Terrell goes on to speak about the how the ideology and practice of segregation shaped the exercise of mercy in tandem with the concept of degradation between 1914 and 1921 which led to a policy of executing white degenerates who posed a threat to the white race so Terrell stresses that degeneracy was not simply a criminology concept. It took on a crucial political meaning and was pressed into a serv- into service in opposition to white working class militancy. So um, there was this thing going on. I don't know about this extensively, but I know about it vaguely. That like during the early 1900s, there were a lot of protests about mining. So poor, poor working class um, white people were subject to the same like exploitation as black miners and this led to a lot of protests um some of them were clearly very racist in which the white people just wanted to have more like better working conditions than black people because hey we're white how dare you but at the same time there were instances wherein they collaborated and this like this is again a very like more sociology concept but this in turn um when black people and white people collaborate because they have a shared material interest, they're both, they're all poor, they all want like to live a better quality of life, then it develops something called class consciousness. So once the people form class consciousness and the class consciousness, particularly with white people, does not really align with um, notions of whiteness, whiteness with a capital W, which is the hegemony of white people, right? And um, 
when it acts in against that, it ends up um, threatening the material interest of rich white people. So whenever this happens, then the rich white people try to, what's the word I want to use? They try to appeal to the poor white masses by saying that like, you are better than these black people, right? And you should not be aligning yourself with them. So let me give you these um, peanuts and then you must now... Um, you must now disassociate from these people and associate with me instead. I hope that makes sense. It's like it's like a means of using race to kind of align people on opposite sides. Even though your material interests lie with these poor black people, you think to yourself, you conceptualize as a, yourself as a white person and you're like, okay, so I am white, I must be standing with these guys. Um, like I, I didn't write down write this down so I'm unable to articulate it properly. Um, so, but I hope I'm drawing the message across properly. I hundred percent will be talking about whiteness again on this uh, podcast. So I will talk about it at a later stage, and like more extensively and more better. But for now, that is <laughs> what I mean. Yo, guys, tough times are lasting underneath this blanket. I'm so tired now. <laughs> okay, so, um, but. To demonstrate how death penalty and mercy were related to the socio-political context of Africa, South Africa, Terrell goes to stress on the argument about death penalty concerns. Um, death penalty concerns racial. Uh, goes on to stress that the argument about the penalty concerns racial equality, and the argument about mercy concerns sovereignty, power, and discretion. In his view, mercy was exercised as a weather vane of the stability and instability of a government and that the executions were a powerful display of sovereign powers but the concludes that it was impossible to dispense equality in a racially unequal society. So in essence, what this means, one of my roommates keep walking, keeps walking out of, in and out of her door, it's very annoying. But like, what the author basically means is that when people try to justify the death penalty, they just say like we're putting everyone on everyone on an equal playing field. We're just saying that like no one's life is more worth more than another. So if you take someone else's life, yours should be taken away as well. But the problem in the South African context is that it was stratified in such a way that not everyone's life was given equal worth, equal meaning. Um, and so you find that like the people who are most targeted are the ones whose lives are seen as less than, and these people's are obviously black people and as such you find that um the imposition of this death penalty which was supposed to be whose hallmark is supposed to be equality cannot operate properly in a racially unequal society and as a society that is so clearly um made to operate to benefit the rich the white and to disadvantage the black the poor and the intersection of those particularly so his argument becomes particularly interesting when he considers the question of race and gender in the exercise of mercy. He points out that there were similarities and differences between gender and race discretion in the exercise of mercy. Paternalism and marginality in relation to the weaker race or the weaker sex took the form of accepting what is called a cultural defense. In his words, the death penalty was biased against the poor and ethnic minority and in favor of women. The great majority of the hanged were African men and the number of women hanged could be counted on the fingers of one hand. So this one, I find it very interesting as well. Because now it's kind of when you see um, the intersection of race and patriarchy and sexism and misogyny, which is like the thing where like obviously black men 
um, with race there are um the ra- their race allows them to be um what is it subject to all sorts of like uh, state sanctioned violence you see that every time even in the present obviously so their race their status as being men and like you know their an associated characteristics such as being masculine such as being um, with the stereotypes being violent uh, being a threat and on the other hand women who stereotypically white women at least are viewed as like soft and um, in need of protection then it makes it so that despite them the their status as being black and the other one as being a woman putting them in a position of um, allowing them to be subordinated the one makes it so that the people are more prone to being punished while the other makes it so that they are less prone to be punished so where the person's race here uh, is an added element that makes them uh, that that allows the state to dehumanize them this the woman's um, status as a woman makes so that the state feels like it must protect her in keeping with the idea of like the the country the state as a paternal figure that's there to protect um you know women in this regard and it's not because like and we should not misunderstand this as like the state's attempt to actually protect women definitely that's not the case it was just a thing of like um what can we say it was like just paternalism like just uh, this idea that women need protection not that and not in the sense that like they need protection from like other people's um, violence but they need protection because they are women you understand what i'm saying Turil also argues that death penalty was transformed from a class of self-defense into a form of racial defense over the 1930s. According to him, death sentences were handed down to protect white against black criminals, white political opponents, and white racial degenerates. His main conclusion is that the exercise of mercy was racist, sexist, and that it was also political. According to essayhistory.org, between 1961 and 1989, about 134 political prisoners were executed by the apartheid government at Pretoria Central Prison. Two decades in particular, the 1960s and the 1980s, witnessed many political executions. While Pretoria Central Prison was the main site for executions, it was not the only facility in the country to enact these murderous acts. South African jails were filled with detainees during the 1970s and 1980s. But there were also many political prisoners in prison. A political prisoner was different to a detainee in that he or she was charged with a political crime and thus was allowed to go to trial to try and prove their innocence. Once found guilty, they were sentenced and served time in prison or were hanged. Because of the repressive laws that the South African government had introduced, almost any kind of resistance to apartheid was classified as a serious offence. Many political prisoners were found guilty under the main security laws such as the International Security Act, the Sabotage Act, and the Terrorism Act. These political prisoners were usually kept on Robben Island or in Pretoria Central Prison. Others who were found guilty of lesser political offences were imprisoned with the general prison popu- population and were treated as ordinary criminals. But obviously, time progressed and eventually we reached the late 1980s and early 1990s. And with it came the talks of freedom and reconciliation and all that lovely jazz. One method of fostering reconciliation was through the Truth and Reconciliation Commission. I cannot stress enough how much I hate the TRC. Every time it is mentioned, every time it is brought up, I feel like melting into a puddle of pure fury. I freaking 
hate it and one day i will speak about that i actually already have an episode in mind about it but anyway the trc happened and it brought to light both how brutal the apartheid regime is and how likely the democratic period under the anc would be justice.org.za um, states that 95 percent of the people sentenced to death in south africa during the apartheid years were black while all the people who sentenced them were white the Truth Reconciliation Commission was told on Tuesday. McBride, the wife of a man who was on the death row but was eventually not killed, said she had visited him every day he was in prison. The death penalty brutalizes those sentences, sentenced and those who sentenced the judges, she said. Prisoners were kept under 24-hour surveillance with the lights on all the time. Prisoners would be told they, would, they were to die or had been granted clemency when the sheriff arrived at the, the prison. Those being executed would be taken to a holding area where they would boil with stress for seven stress for seven days before the execution, McBride said. Seven days, let me tell you, is a very long time for a human being when you know the exact time and way you will be killed. This was confirmed by the death row prisoner Duma Kumalo, one of the Sharpeville Six who was sentenced to death in September 1985 for the murder of Foul Triangle De- Deputy Mayor Kuzwayo Dlamini in September 1984. Kumalo said in a statement, the cruelty of the uh, death penalty was not restricted to the actual moment of execution but began the moment the prison the sentence was passed he told about the psychological trauma of being on death row the tension in everyday life in the prison and the anxiety of waiting to hear who was to be hanged we were all afraid we didn't know when we would be called strong men at night would cry he said kumalo was granted indemnity before the 1994 elections i'm fortunate because i'm still alive I was nearly hanged for something I didn't do, he said. He said it was nowhere near the rent boycott march that led to the murder of Damini. Hearing chairwoman Joyce gets quoted from the court record showed showing Kumalo showing Kumalo was um, convicted as a result of in quotation marks association with the crowd. The sentencing judge and the appeal court had acknowledged there was no direct evidence that the Sharpeville Six were involved in the murder. Johan Steinberg told how the awaiting death prisoners would have their identities checked and were marched down a corridor to a reception room where they had bags placed over their heads. They were then taken into the gallows room and the hangman would place the nooses over the condemned person's necks. They would then be they would then each be hanged. Soroko said from June 1982 to June 1983, 38 of the 81 black people convicted of murdering whites were executed. None of the 31 whites who murdered the black people were hanged, and only one of the whites who murdered whites was executed in the same period, she said. McBride said pro-death penalty advocates should spend the last seven days with the condemned men to experience the terror and horror of the death penalty. The period from the late 1980s to the early 1990s was marked by a whole lot of transformation in numerous southern African countries. During this time, many of them abolished the death sentence. To quote, in Mozambique, the sentence was not imposed after 1986 and was finally removed by the Constitution of 1990, Article 70, Subsection 2, of which simply states, in Mozambique, there will be no death penalty. In 1992, Mozambique also became the first African state to ratify the second optional protocol. In Namibia, a similar approach has been adopted, with Article 6 of the 1990 Constitution stating, the right to life shall be respected and protected. No law may prescribe death as a competent sentence. No court or tribunal shall have the power to impose a sentence of death upon any person. No execution shall take place in Namibia. 
This provision was heavily influenced by the arbitrary use of the death sentence during the colonial period and a resultant determination that such activity should have no place in the new nation. Similarly, in Angola, civil war and serious disorder have not prevented the abolition of the death sentence, despite the state of affairs, right? In South Africa, the February 1990 moratorium on the use of capital punishment was followed by the 1993 constitution, which simply states every person shall have the right to life. So I just want to give a little bit of context. Um, this article was writing, written in 1994, so like the there may have been certain updates, you know, some countries may have banned the death penalty since then i just i don't know because I, I didn't um check like if it's like this now but as of this is all information that is updated as of 1994 which is a long time ago but yeah uh, i was tired <laughs> so however there are a few southern african countries that still have the death penalty as of 1994 both um then and Botswana have long-standing death sentence provisions, whilst in Lesotho and Malawi, the new constitution specifically retain capital punishment. In Zambia, hopes that the 1990 constitution would abolish the death sentence were not realized, although the whole question of the retention of the death sentence is currently under review by the Law Development Commission. In 1992 in Zimbabwe, and following a two-year moratorium on the executions, the government decided to retain capital punishment. However, whilst the constitution specifically permits the use of capital punishment, on many occasions, influential figures, including the then Chief of Justice, Enoch Dumbutena, publicly called for its abolition. Perhaps as a consequence, challenges to its use have mounted based on Section 15, Subsection 1 of the constitution. The section, the section provides, no person shall be subjected to, a torture, to torture or inhumane or degrading punishment or other such treatment. The case that changed everything with regard to the death penalty in South Africa was S, the S versus Magwanyani case, where it was decided that the death penalty is unconstitutional as it infringes upon people's right to freedom. The judges cited about a, a bunch of different other factors, such as the fact that, like, um, during apartheid, judges would use um, would would um, give people the death penalty on arbitrary basis. You know, like it was based on like racist agendas and all of that others like a lot of factors, and I was. I was too tired to go like I have to read the case regardless for like work but I didn't feel like reading it right now so but that's on that so the decision was met with quite a bit of backlash particularly because it was not in line with public opinion or policy like I said many South Africans prefer the death penalty for most of them it is because they do not understand that it is not going to improve their position in society and for the other portion it is because they understand it won't improve other people's position in society but ultimately the judges cited that um, they have to give effect to constitutional provisions. They don't always have to take into account public opinion or policy because the constitution is the supreme law of the republic and anything that does not um, adhere to its provisions is, is, is invalid by default. It would be very unfair of me to sit here and ignore the fact that people are justified in wanting to live peaceful lives. They want to feel safe. They don't want to live in constant fear. And they want to go to bed knowing that if someone would seriously harm them, that there would be some sort of an effort to make things better. The post-1994 government has done very little to stop the rise of violent crimes. Um, or I don't want to say the rise, I want to say the continued occurrence of violent crimes. Because it just kept happening. It's not like um, we had a peaceful society before apartheid ended. So I feel like it is always important to remember that we have 
been a traumatized people for literally centuries. We went from colonial, colonial conquest to, say, to state-sanctioned oppression. We had revolts, we had protests, our parents were abused and saw their own parents being dehumanized. Their houses were raided, they were forcefully taken out of their homes, slurs were hassled at them, they were underpaid, underfed and discarded. They protested, they saw people dying before their very eyes, they were shot, they received poor education and the list goes on. The problem is that nothing has been done to rehabilitate black South Africans. Absolutely nothing. All that pent-up generational trauma runs in so many of our people's veins. It then leads to the occurrence of so many societal ills. Think about it. Think about it. And the death penalty cannot do anything to improve this state of affairs. It was never designed to do that. Killing a murderer or a rapist does not guarantee that another one won't pop up in their place. The issue is, like everything else, structural. We cannot hyperfixate on removing bad apples when the roots of the tree are rotten. And the problem again is that the state hasn't even put in any sort of consorted effort to rehabilitate, the, to rehabilitate these people. We just went from being like, okay guys, now we can vote, therefore everything is okay. And it's really not. Being given the right to vote does not mean that like all that trauma has been scraped away. And it's why I keep saying that I hate the TRC. Because it was like, it's people who committed literal crimes against humanity just say, okay, I'm so sorry. Then they don't have to be punished at all for their things that they've done. And again, it focuses on the worst crimes, not all these other crimes that have long-lasting impacts, right? Crimes like um, spatial segregation, um, poor education, all of these things. These ones have long-lasting impacts. Whereas things like violent crimes and crimes against humanity, yes, they're bad, but they have a more, I want to say, they don't have that long-term impact in terms of like, um, like, yes, they do, like the trauma, but like, it's a thing that happened at one point in time, right? Whereas you being so far away from a, the economic hub of a province or a city means that you are constantly going to remain poor. And these things are not handled. People haven't gone to therapy. People haven't spoken about what they've went through, right? And then they inflict harm upon their children and then their children inflict harm upon their children. And this is not to say that like people should be somehow exempted from um um what is the word shouldn't be held accountable for the wrongs that they commit they should but we also aren't acknowledging the fact that this is just a system of traumatizing each other re-traumatizing each other because like we've been traumatized for so long and there's no effort being made to uh, rehabilitate all of these people and yeah in present day south africa we have people still talking about like Let's bring back the death penalty, not knowing all of its associated implications, all of its associated bads. And that's why I made this episode, right? Because um, there was obviously, we had to talk about the SMS's Makwanyan case in a tutorial. And then obviously there's people who have differing opinions about like whether or not the death penalty should be instituted. I feel like the conversation was very bland because of course it's online now. So we can't be seeing people and being like yeah so just sad but it is what it is but it's just i hope i have presented enough information to just show you guys how bad the death penalty is right throughout from its inception um, whether it's in the western world or in the african continent uh, although in the african continent it functioned a bit differently but from its inception again we're using the mode of 
the the, the mode of death penalty which is like um, used throughout the world is predominantly the western model right so we see that its inception has been inherently violent and will continue to just perpetuate that same type of violence and it helps no one in the grand scheme of things and i don't think that it can help south africa to do anything because our problems are structural our problems are the fact that people don't have jobs it's the fact that people are traumatized it's the fact that people are, uh, are, are like that sexism is so entrenched in our ways of being it's all of these things that like require the system to be ref- to be just not even reformed to be just thrown away completely full stop <laughs> so that is the end of today's episode i really hope you enjoyed it i am so tired of being under this blanket i have to study i <laughs> i have a test on monday but i was like i have to finish this episode because i promised myself i will not miss a second week ever so i hope you enjoyed it um i even though i'm really tired i really enjoyed researching it and i hope you like this format i don't know if this format is even different from my normal format i'm pretty sure it's exactly the same i just think it's different but it's really not and that is all from me um i'll see you guys in the next episode and until then stay safe stay snazzy and follow screw you on instagram at s-c-r-u-e-y-o-u and um, i'll see you next time bye bye